your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Welcome into another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host alongside James Fox. As always, he's here because we talk White Sox baseball on the Future Sox Podcast every Tuesday, part of the Broadcast Basement Network. Luckily, we have Chris Lanuti, the owner and operator of the Broadcast Basement Network. And it's been a pleasure so far for us because we wanted an outlet to be able to grow. And Chris has had that opportunity. It was there for us. So, uh, so far, so good. Right, Chris? Yeah. I mean, I like having you guys around. I mean, I get to come on as a guest on your show now, so I feel mm-hmm. pretty I feel pretty special. So, I mean, I'm, I'm excited that you guys are uh, are doing it. Look, I mean, in my mind, it was a no-brainer. You you guys do such great stuff with, uh, you know, the minor leagues for the Sox and, uh, you know, following the prospects. And I, I wait for your prospect list. And uh, when you guys said, hey, we're we're looking for a place to, to hang and, and just, you know, kind of grow – and, and, you know, the, the broadcast basement's my baby. I started it five years ago. It's a, it's a network that's been kind of set up for like niche audiences, whether it be a very small local area like Southside pod that we do, or the EP podcast just for Evergreen park, or like a fan base, like the white Sox for with socks in the basement and future socks is a, is just right in that alley. You know, I mean, it's a, that's for people that really want uh, great coverage of what's going on in the minor leagues. They want to hear about the prospects. They want to know who's coming. They want to know where the deficiencies are in, inside the White Sox organization. Uh, I, I'm excited to have you guys on board. We're very thankful to be uh, on the team, of course, because, like I said, it's an opportunity for Future Sox to reach more listeners and to have a direction uh, with Chris at the helm. It, it helps us big time. And we're looking forward today on the episode to talk about a plethora of topics, including what's to come in the offseason, uh, there's some news regarding Kim Ng in Miami. She's out, and maybe that's something we can discuss related to the Chicago White Sox being interested. Well, maybe, hopefully, possibly. I'm down if that happens, but I know we have more information about that as well. Well, I want to hear Chris's opinion about the front office changes, some of the hires that are brought in, some reassignments, and we're also looking at players who may be um, – picked up on their recent contract, maybe foresee the starting lineup. I don't know if they're going to go in the offseason and acquire some guys. I don't know how much money they're going to spend this offseason. We're going to discuss it all here on the podcast. But first, Chris, I want your opinion on the front office changes because, yes, Chris gets has stepped in, but he's also made some hires, and we're seeing guys from outside the organization, such as Brian Bannister specifically, who I'm really looking forward to seeing the growth within the pitching infrastructure senior advisor to pitching now is Bannister as well as guys like Gene Watson who is director of player personnel formerly of the Royals uh, kind of familiar obviously Royals has you know, it's typical here we're starting to see a pattern here but Josh Barfield coming from the Diamondbacks labeled the assistant general manager in Chicago so Chris I mean, overall if we could start with Bannister what do you think about the hires under Chris Getz? Well, you know, in, rather than react to each one of them individually, w- what I reacted to was that we were bringing in guys from outside the organization. And I, I think that's very important. We didn't get what we, a lot of us, wanted. 
And that was a general manager hire that was going to be from outside the organization because one of the biggest problems that the White Sox have is a rotten internal core that sits inside of their front office and just festers. And, you know, the same people are there year in, year out. There's never any accountability and nothing ever changes. And so when you heard Chris Getz initially as the, as the, as the hire, essentially, a guy who had already been in the building, you go, well, then nothing's really changed, right? The only positive thing that I could draw off of was that Getz immediately went out and started getting guys that are respected and that are coming in with fresh perspectives. I look at Bannister and I say, they've done a very good job with pitching out in San Francisco, Right. I, I, I look at I look at uh, Parfield coming from Arizona. And, and meanwhile, the Diamondbacks are in the postseason with a young team that's developed some players. So, I mean, like when I when I look at the idea that he's bringing guys in from outside the organization, that's what makes me excited. Like for anybody, especially myself sitting in a bar in my basement on the south side to try to sit there and say, I know this guy's a better evaluator than another guy. I, I have no idea who's good and who's bad deep down, who got lucky with a draft pick or who got lucky because some guy just developed and they didn't really have anything to do with it. What I look for is just, you know, overall are they coming from organizations that have done things better than the White Sox? Yes. And and do they have at least something they can hang their hat on that they've done well? I I, th- I think our, our pitching director or coordinator, whatever that exact title is, has shown that he's been able to do that. I think that what we're seeing in Arizona, I would think that Barfield's had his hand in it. I, every time I hear about a Royals hire, I go, okay. I mean, like I know everybody's reacting to the idea of bringing in anybody from the Royals. But the Royals have been the two World Series since the White Sox were last there. And they went to -to back-to-back, which is difficult to do. And now I know some of those guys aged out, and I know that it didn't work out for them, and they're right back in the cellar again. But I don't know if we can criticize the Royals too much because they've had far more success than we've had in the last decade, unfortunately. And the Royals thing, like, I know everybody's, like, freaking out, and, like, we'll we'll get into the part that they should actually freak out about later, but I want to stay on, like, coaching and front office changes. I mean, it's really hard to be upset over, like, Josh Barfield and the addition of Brian Bannister. The most interesting, like, parts of that, I think, is, like, I think Brian Bannister's title is strange, and I don't really know what it means, and now I'm almost kind of wondering if they're going to do the same thing like on the hitting side with like some overarching like hitting czar that's going to be like at the very top of the org, like some other orgs do. Um, But the Gene Watson part, like Gene Watson seems like just like one of these old boy network scouts. (laughs) So look like that, that's just part of this thing. And he's from Kansas city. Um, But, but at least the one good thing is like, I think we know that we could like blame him for stuff if stuff goes wrong, because he's the director of player personnel, which they have not had. And I've come on your show and I've come on other shows and we've talked about pro scouting and I get asked who's in charge of pro scouting and I have no idea. So I just assumed like Kenny or one of his minions was always doing everything. Now we know who's in charge of pro scouting. One other thing we talked about on your show and this show was just the fact that like there'd be a lot of like Kenny Williams guys, right? Not in this organization anymore. And I think like we'll we'll come to a time when I'll send you a text message and be like, hey, pull up the uh, the website. And some of these names are just gone without an announcement. And that's already kind of started with first base coach Daryl Boston. It finally happened. What what were uh, your thoughts, Chris, just on some of the coaching changes that have happened over the last week? Well, I was I was thrilled that Daryl Boston left because what Daryl Boston represented to me was, you know, Kenny Williams's guy, his roommate, his best buddy, 
sitting inside of a coaching staff, and it didn't matter what coach you brought in, Debo was going to be there. And you got to be kidding me if you don't believe that Daryl Boston wasn't running back to Kenny probably and telling him this is what's going on in the clubhouse. I mean, it was it was like having a it was like having a spy inside the clubhouse. And every manager that came walking in the door had to deal with that. And so that that movement makes me feel positive about Chris Getz. And only just because he feels like a guy who was sitting in the building and saw the dysfunction and said, oh, if I was ever in charge, I would get rid of a lot of these guys. Like, these are these guys are problems. And maybe that's why. I mean, think about it this way. If you're, if you're somebody who gets a brand-new job and you can't figure out exactly who's good at their job and who was just there because they were somebody's boy, like, if you were Kenny's guy, but are you any good at it? And you need to bring somebody in who you trust when you feel like you're surrounded by a lot of people that you're not sure are very good at what they do, and you don't know if they're actually for you or they're from the old camp. What would you do? You'd go find somebody you're familiar with. So he goes out and gets a guy from Kansas City where he used to work. He goes out and gets somebody he's familiar with to come in and look at the scouts and actually evaluate who's good at their job and who's bad at their job. I mean, he if he would have gotten somebody that he had never worked with before, how does he know whether or not he trusts that person? That might have just been a trust hire from Kansas City to bring in somebody who is going to sit there and look over his, his scouting department and try to figure out who's worth something in here and who's bad at it as he weeds out all of the problems that have just been basically stuck in there during the Williams and Han era, and really the Williams era, because a lot of these guys were Williams's guys that were sitting in there. The whole front office is infested with people that probably should have been fired years ago. I mean, there were reports coming out that there were guys who weren't even handing in their scouting reports and that Kenny would just kind of shrug and be like, yeah, but you know, it's my friend. Like we're all reading this stuff in the last couple of months. So I kind of get the idea of bringing in somebody from Kansas city who, who, who he's, fr- who he knows and saying, okay, well you go in there and you take a look and you tell me if this guy's any good at scouting baseball or he's just, just a good friend of Kenny Williams. And when it comes to the coaching things, you know, Pedro didn't really get to pick all of his guys. And I'm okay with the idea that after a complete failure of a year, if you're going to stick around with the manager because he's still got two more years left on his contract and you're going to give him at least one, and trust me, if he does a bad job or he isn't Getz's guy, Getz will get rid of him before he even even manages 2025. I, I believe that. Because every every GM wants to get their own guy in there. But he's going to give Pedro an opportunity because he's familiar with him, and it's really a lost year in 24. Why not give the guy who he wants? Why not? I mean, like you, if 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 when I was a boss, and and I I you know bef- in between doing radio, there was a ten year period of time where I was a nine one one dispatcher, and for about four years I was like the midnight's watch commander at Cook County nine one one, a high intensity job, and you find yourself as a boss surrounding yourself with the people directly below you, as like you go and find the people you trust. And you you give those people what they're asking for because you want to evaluate and see are they good at what they they do. So to me, I look at the coaching moves and I look at the changes in the front office is Chris Getz basically sitting there saying, okay, I know there's problems. These people I'm sure are problems. Get them out. I know I need some people brought in to fix these issues right away. And then I also need people I can trust who can evaluate what else is going on in here. And I'm going to give the manager who he wants. Because if he's good at his job, we're going to find out this year. If he's bad at his job, he's not going to be able to sit there and tell me, well, I didn't get all the tools I needed. 
No, no, no. You take the coaches and you take the people you need around you, Pedro, and let's see if you can actually do it. That's what that's how I look at it. Well, so the other thing that's interesting is like another new hitting coach, right? And I've heard you kind of talk touch on this on your show in the past. Like the fact that you're gonna hire one hitting coach to coach all these guys in the first place, like seems crazy anyway. And like the whole industry kind of does it. Now, you know, the White Sox had three hitting coaches last year, the two, and then Chris Johnson's probably gonna go back to the minor leagues. And then the guy, Mike Tozar, he has like a weird title that me and Mike, oh, he's like the major league field coordinator or something. But like he was rumored right away to be the next White Sox hitting coach because him and Grafol go back to high school. So I wonder if they're going to leave Tozar where he is or if he just becomes the hitting coach or if this is an opportunity to go out and get like the Brian Bannister equivalent on the hitting side. And then you just like hire all new hitting coaches under that person. I actually hope that that's what it is, but I'm I'm really not sure what they're going to do here. It'll be kind of interesting just to kind of see how they they fill these roles of the departed here. I, I love the idea of having somebody overlooking hitting and then guys that do different things because there's power hitters, there's slap hitters. There's there's got to be somebody there that sits there in like a room and shows video and says you should be taking these pitches, right? There's got to be somebody that sits there and almost deals with the psychology of being a hitter. And, and I, I know that they have somebody on staff that, you know, sits down and talks to them about their problems and what's going on in their heads and everything like that. They have a doctor that, that is there. But, you know, it would be interesting if you had a former player that knows how to work through slumps or at least can give, like, some sage advice. Like, I would have as many hitting guys on my staff as you have, you know, uh, positional coordinators on a football team. I, you know, for all the money that you have invested into Major League Baseball players and for what it actually costs for a couple extra coaches, I'd have the couple extra coaches. I don't think you can have, you know, if you, but then if you're going to have a lot of coaches, you need to have a director because then you got too many voices in the room unless you have one person who's the strong, this is our philosophy, this is what we're doing overall, and can sit there and look at a player that's having a problem or somebody that has an issue and say, you know, this guy over here is the right one to work with him right now. And this person over here, stay away from them because your style is going to make it even worse, right? You need that person that's the overall looking down person. Otherwise, you just got four or five guys that have four or five different philosophies, and you're actually going to be more messed up than when you started at the beginning of the year. Make sure you're following Chris on Twitter, at Chris Lanuti, and be sure to be listening to the Socks in the Basement podcast as well as all the others that he hosts on BroadcastBasement.com. Go to the website and explore the options, as he was describing earlier as well. Chris, I really like the analogy that you put together regarding your time as a 911 dispatcher and building relationships, culture. How would you assess the White Sox culture and how much of that do you think matters to a successful baseball team? Because we know the clubhouse is in disarray regarding the players and everything else, but now you're getting a fresh set of eyes kind of right. Who's putting you know his, his stamp on things and he's bringing in outside qualified individuals to, to fill roles. What's your assessment currently of the culture and what do you want to see improved? Well, first off, I, I agree with, with Ozzie Guillen when he says fun is winning and winning is fun. Like a lot of culture problems fix themselves when you have a winning team. On the, on the other hand, there's something missing within this team. There's something missing within this clubhouse. There's, you know, I'm, I'm going to sound like a meatball saying it, but it just doesn't feel like it has a lot of heart. You know, I watch I watch the Phillies play. They got heart. They got attitude. You know, I'm watching this postseason, and you just you just love watching them, and you just pine for the idea that you could have had Bryce Harper. 
you should have had Bryce Harper. Heck, Bryce Harper has said since he went to the Phillies that he wanted to go to the White Sox. I mean, it's it's just embarrassing when you look at it. I mean, it, it, that's what they're missing. They're missing that edge. That 05 team had an edge when they won the World Series. The teams that win have a little bit of an edge, have a little bit of fire. You don't have somebody who's sitting around going, I tweaked this or I got this issue here, and they're not out on the field. And 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 that's the other thing. There's There's something weird about how the White Sox go about their business in the 162 games, uh, you know, I I had somebody on my show recently who tried to explain to me that the reason that Tim Anderson might have been bad all year long is because of an injury he suffered at the beginning of the year. And I was like, well, okay, but then why not shut him down for three weeks and get him 100%? Why waste five months of him at 80% if that was really the problem? There's just something that's off within the building. And, and it's not something that is just changing two players. It's not something of changing two coaches. It's an overall change in how they do business. It goes all the way back to how they how they utilize their 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 injured list and when when they put guys on the IL. I mean, we we got guys who sit around on the bench taking up a bench spot for five, six, seven days injured when we could have another guy on the bench, and then the manager has to manage with a short bench. And so it, there's there's so many systematic problems, and I think that adds to the cultural problem. If you're always losing, you're miserable. If you don't have enough players, you're miserable. If you feel like you're always a little bit behind because the team is not operating properly, you're miserable. If you've got a guy who only plays well when the pressure isn't on or when the games don't matter and then then disappears for a month and there's no accountability and he's never benched, you're miserable. You know, I... I always had this philosophy that Tim Anderson had to be a little bit miserable playing next to a guy who was making three times as much as him, uh, uh, as him almost with in Moncada. I think he's twice as much. It'd be three times, almost three times as much coming up here. I mean, like there's a big disparity there and TA has been killing it for the last couple of years. Moncada's terrible. And so, you know, the, the, there's all these little weird disparities within the locker room and you can't tell me that it doesn't affect the players. And you can't tell me the camps don't form within the the organization when you got guys that are going at it 100% for 162 games and guys that are not, and you don't see accountability on the field. All of that gets fixed if from the top down there's one singular message. And so you hope that now that you don't have two leaders, because that's what I, that's what I started here and after this was all over, you had Rick Hahn trying to do something and Kenny could just override him whenever he wanted to. Kenny's got his guys inside the dugout. Rick's got a plan, but Kenny's plan may change tomorrow. And oh wait, Jerry might walk in and change everything because he owns the team. And all of a sudden he feels like that day, he's a baseball expert. You, you need to streamline things as much as possible. And unfortunately for Chris Getz, he's got to be a buffer too. He's got to head off Jerry at the door and be like, what, what do you need? You, you, you good? You got a question? I'll answer your question for you and just keep them away from everybody else. And so it's a difficult thing to do, but bringing in guys from outside the organization to have different fresh perspectives on things is the good first start to changing that culture. Chris, I think that is very well put, and I agree with you. I I think that was very well said, and I talked about this with Elijah Evans on the Future Sox Roundup as well. Give me some accountability. Show me as a player that you want to be on the field playing for the Chicago White Sox. I haven't felt that in a while. I don't know how long it's been, but it's it's been a while. You can see the former players getting upset about it. Scott Pacenic wants to jump through the television screen and strangle somebody. I mean, he looks miserable when he comes out in the postgame. And I think that's the other indicator, too. I think as a fan, when you see former players look like they're like, I can't say what I want to say because I'm on the White Sox network. Like, it'll, like, but you can see it. You can see, like, their faces are turning red. Like, And these guys are winners who have won before. 
that I also think that that tells me that I'm not that far off on my on my perspective as to how things were running inside that organization the last couple of years. It's very hard to argue with what we know as fans and obviously limited access, of course, but it tells a story. It really does when you can just watch the body language and the day to day and how, like you said, how the organization handles certain situations and decision making processes. Now, let's talk about the future. Uh, how serious do you think the White Sox are going to be in terms of competing in 2024, highlighted by the fact that, yes, they have to make a decision on players like Tim Anderson and Liam Hendricks as, as uh, club options are coming up here? Well, I don't, I don't think you have a chance to win anything in 24. Does any, I mean, does anybody look at this roster and the money that's tied up in it, knowing that the guy who owns the team is not going to make a drastic addition in terms of payroll to it? Does anybody look at this and say we can fix all of these problems in in one offseason? I I don't think that that's a realistic thing. I mean they're they're going to try to sell that to you because they got to sell tickets. And I, I I think what you should be selling, and what they're going to have to do, and I think Getz is already kind of doing it. He's already kind of changing the narrative that was being pushed by the last regime, the idea of hey we're going to try to be better next year, and then we're going to get better the year after that. Because I think anybody who looks at 2025 sees an awful lot of payroll flexibility. An awful lot of room to add in the offseason, an awful lot of room to to you know to to kind of change the core of your team if you want to. There are not a lot of guys who are either not are non-arbitration or pre-arbitration that will be actually locked into a contract when you get to 2025. I mean, the important one will be there. Luis Robert Jr. will have his contract still, right? But you're going to have a couple of buyouts. You can you can buy out the third baseman. You know, you can you can buy out Aaron Bummer. You can buy, I mean, you Eloy Jimenez, I believe, is somebody that you can you can buy out in that year as well, even though I think that they'll trade him in the offseason. So there's a, there's a lot of things that you can do in 25. I don't think you can ever change a team, though, in a single offseason. And so what I would be doing if I were Chris Getz right now is I would say, yes, I want to get better in 24. I want to establish a winning attitude. I want to give Pedro a chance to start, you know, implementing what he wants to do. And I want to give all these guys that are bringing in from outside the organization a chance to start showing people what White Sox baseball is going to be going forward. And I want to establish that base. And in the meantime, there is no reason to waste money and resources on players that won't be here in 2025. Liam Hendricks is a great story. Liam Hendricks not only is a hell of a ball player and a nice guy who jumped on our show one time for 30 minutes on Socks in the Basement as he was driving with his windows down in a motorcycle gang, it sounded like next to him. It was just the worst audio quality we've had in like 550 episodes. But it was nice for him to get on, okay? And he was he was a nice guy when he got off the air chit-chatting with us as well. He's a he's a good guy who had a, a terrible uh, disease, who fought it off and got his cancer in remission. He's an amazing story. He got himself hurt, and guess what? He's not going to be an effective pitcher for at least the first half of next year. And you're not doing anything wrong. You're not bad people. If you pay him his money, but you spread it out over the next 10 years or whatever that is with the the, the deferment and, and just and moving on, I, that's what I would do, okay? Let Liam heal. You, you could still tell him, hey, we'll let you use the facilities. You know, you could hang around the team for a little while until you sign with somebody else. I'm sure there's plenty of things you can do there to help out Liam Hendricks, but you don't tie up that money this season on Liam Hendricks and just keep him around. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And then I would move on from Tim Anderson as well. I, I know that that's not a popular opinion with everybody, but if you buy him out for a million dollars, you got $13 million to play with. And there are changes you could make right now 
in the offseason with that money. I hate the way that Rick Hahn over the last couple of years would insist on picking up options or holding on to players because he just felt like he was going to get this incredible trade value out of the player. The problem with a trade is, one, the only players you can go get are players that other teams are willing to give up. So you've already you've already reduced your pool of players in doing that. And two, you you've got to you've got to convince them to actually make the deal. And you've got to hope the guy that you're waiting to have the rebound season in Anderson actually has the rebound season, or he's just wasting away on your team. In in my mind, if you move on from TA and you got thirteen million dollars in the offseason, you can go out and get effective starting position players that could play second base or you know, can can sit behind the plate and catch, or can go out and play a solid right field. And you can start building bridges to the guys that are coming up in the, in the next year or two and get to that point with all that payroll flexibility. That's what I would be doing at this point. T.A. was it was just a great player for the Sox, and he may have good years in front of him, and he may not. But I know he does not have a good year in front of him in 2025 playing shortstop for the White Sox with Colson Montgomery likely here. So I, at this point, that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at the idea of, you know, save a little bit of the money and use the money in 24. Use the money to start building, but your goal is 25. You could sign guys the multi-year deals that'll still be here in 25, but use it now. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that. I think kind of looking at this roster, I don't think there's many untouchables, like other than, you know, Luis Robert probably. And it's all about who's going to be on this team in 2025. And if you're not going to be, like I, I think like we're gonna hear about trade talks and some other things this offseason. I think, you know, we're gonna hear a lot about Dylan Cease trades being revisited, and there's really no reason for Aaron Bummer to be on this team. And so, you know, maybe we hear about a or you know, some some other like random names. It really could be anybody. I don't think they're gonna give somebody away. But just any any thoughts you have there, like who who are you? I don't know about expecting to like see moved, but I mean, like, I, like they're going to shake up this mix. So I guess who, who, who would be the guys that you, you think like, Oh yeah, that wouldn't really surprise you that much if they move this off season. I wouldn't be shocked if they moved on from Aloy Jimenez. I think the only unfortunate thing is that, and maybe I'm, maybe you think I'm crazy for this, but if you wouldn't have traded Jake Berger away, then you probably would have sat there and said, well, we can definitely move on from Aloy Jimenez because we got, we've got a power hitter that we can we can put out there that can that can mash and he's actually playing more games over 162 than what Aloy is doing and neither one of them are defensive gems but at least we've got a guy with a big bat that we could keep in the lineup I still think that you move on from Aloy because when you look at his money he's not worth it I think an average win above replacement is around eight million dollars and He's not, he's not even getting you what his contract is if you look at what he did last year. And it's very hard to be worth a lot of wins for a team when you're not on the field all the time. So, I, yeah, that's a guy that I think they could move. I think the Dylan Cease thing is also a real possibility. I think it would shock people because you don't have a lot of pitchers already in this rotation. And you've heard my opinion. I, like, I, I, I don't even know if you can guarantee me that Michael Kopech is really a starter. And because he still hasn't done anything that show me he's anything other than a fifth starter. And I don't know if he's ever going to develop in anything else. I think he'd be an incredible, like, you know, one or two or three inning reliever. Like, a, like he'd be somebody who could come out and really change a game for you if he was coming out uh, of the bullpen. And I, he may he may have a greater career doing that later on in his life. But maybe the Sox aren't ready to go that direction. And I'm sure he doesn't want to go that way either. But I think Cease, even with that, that, 
the very little amount of depth, the, the no depth, the no rotation that basically the White Sox have going into 2024 is still a trade candidate because there's no way that you're going to have him once he gets the free agency, unless he just is terrible, like something bad happens, and then you wouldn't want him anyway because Scott Boris is taking him the free agency. And Jerry Reinsdorf's not signing a pitcher that's represented by Scott Boris. That's just not going to happen. So if he if he does have a value and you feel like that value is going to help you, and then you and you feel like then when you get to 25, you could be a competitive team without Dylan Cease on your roster and the right deal comes along, yeah, I could see him getting moved as well. I mean, those are two really those Aloy and, and Dylan Cease are probably the two that are sitting up at the top because I don't know how many other guys have like great value. I don't think anybody's going to come knocking on your door and want to take the rest of Andrew Benintendi's contract after a down year last year. I don't think Andrew Vaughn has shown anybody in Major League Baseball that you're going to go throw a bunch of uh, bunch at the White Sox to try to get their their uh, their average to below average first baseman. Like I, I don't think that there's a lot of other pieces that would make massive impacts on the team. Those guys though can be can be moved, and Jimenez especially because I you know I just I just feel like all he is in the end is a designated hitter. And if all he is in the end is a designated hitter that's going to play about half the games of the season, I think you can spend that money somewhere else. You can find that 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 someplace else. If somebody finds value in him and still believes, oh, if we can just keep him healthy, he'll be a superstar, and they're giving you something for him, that's a trade I would make. Yeah, and I think, like, Cease, it just comes down to do they think they can get more in December or more at the trade deadline, right? Like if they hear four young names from, you know, Baltimore, Arizona or whoever that they like, like I'm sure they'd make the trade in December, but after the season he just had, like I wouldn't be shocked if they just decide to take him into the season. Maybe they feel comfortable with like, they think that Brian Bannister and Ethan Katz can like enhance him. And then he's the biggest pitcher on the market in July. Like I, I just, I think that's, what we're going to have to figure out, but I agree with you. Like, I don't think there's any way that whether they're contending or not, like Dylan Cease is on the 2025 White Sox. And that means you should be trying to get as much as you can for him as soon as possible. And Chris, yep. just to add on to what you were saying, I'm with you on the Loy Jimenez. I think people aren't talking about that option enough as a trade target for other teams and the White Sox willing to deal that player. I think he is absolutely replaceable. The thing is, if he's healthy for 162, which we haven't seen ever, uh, I think he's an elite hitter, but he's not shown that he's been capable to do that. And related to Michael Kopech, I'm with you as well. Like I'm starting to think that maybe the best pathway forward for Kopech in his career is to focus on two pitches that are his bread and butter, which are fastball-slider combo. That's it, because he can't throw a curveball. He's not throwing his changeup nearly enough, in my opinion, to be considered a legitimate starting five option. Now, I want to throw this your way as well, because we heard about this last week related to two specific players on potentially on the market that the White Sox may be interested in. One is Salvador Perez. He's 34 years old and owed $20 million next year and $22 million in 2025, uh, as well as Whit Merrifield currently on the Toronto Blue Jays. We know that he had a really good career in Kansas City, but First, the Blue Jays have to make a decision whether or not they want to keep them. What was your opinion about that rumor, and how do you feel about the White Sox interest in those two? Well, I, I think when you're talking about that rumor, the first thing you have to do after you get over the, oh my goodness, it's more Royals players, and look how old they are, is to separate the two of them when you're talking about it and, and look at this realistically. I'll start with Merrifield. 
First of all, Toronto's not going to pay him $18 million. I think that's what his option is. Like, I mean, he's got a, he's got an OPS below the league average, and he's a he's just terrible defensively. He he would not be a he'd be an upgrade for the White Sox, right? Because we we just really haven't had a second baseman, so he would just be a a major league baseball player sta- standing at second base, which we haven't had for a while. That's what he would be. But you would get him at a much lower price. I don't think he's the best available second baseman that's going to be sitting out there that that you could get in the same price range of where he's at. Like I I, I floated the idea of in Minnesota Polanco may become uh, available, and I was like, well, you know, he can still play a little bit better defense. He's going to hit around the same as what Merrifield's doing, but I mean, I see just a few more intrinsic like, intrinsic like upsides to him and they may come in at around the same amount of money as what they'd be worth in, in free agency and I also think he may come free in in the option thing with the, with the twins so the he may not be the best option if they sign Whit Merrifield to a th- four million dollar contract or something like that or they use him as a bridge or they're like we just want to bring in somebody that we're comfortable with we know he's a good locker room guy and we're just looking for him to be like a major league baseball player at second base who's going to be hitting towards the bottom of the of the order and they're not paying him a ton of money I just kind of shrug it and say okay fine as long as long as you have a long-term plan whether it be development in the minors or going out and spending in 25 on the position at some point, it'll have to be replaced, and it'll have to be replaced soon. Sal Perez would be really intriguing to me if you didn't have to give him $20 million a year, right? I mean, like, he's not worth that. He made that money off of, like, the two seasons where his OPS was, like, one was, like, in the high 800s, and the other one was in the 900s, coming off the elbow injury, I believe, that he had. And then he went back, if you look at his baseball card, just look at his baseball, he's basically back to what he was before that. And he's a good catcher who's older, who can, who's, who's serviceable and he wouldn't be a bad guy. I, I mean, like, we, I think we made this point on socks in the basement. Like if you moved on from Tim Anderson and you bought him out for a million dollars and you had 13 million and you were able to spend basically $13 million to pick up Sal Perez at like seven or $8 million and then pick up a guy like Whit Merrifield, I'd shrug and say, okay, fine. They brought in a couple of guys that the, the manager is comfortable with, and you don't have anybody to play those positions anyway in 24. And so these guys are placeholders until the guys that you're expecting to come in, come in. The biggest problem with Sal Perez is the amount of money that he's owed. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to trade Moncada for him? You're just going to trade bad money for other bad money, but you like this bad money because he fills your 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 position at catcher and the manager loves him like I don't know if that's worth it so the, the biggest problem is the money with him if, if somehow the Royals were like yeah we'll make that deal and we'll eat some of it then I would probably say okay that's fine they need a catcher it wouldn't upset me that much the problem is on fa- at face value looking at the rumor and what these guys are owed next year and what they've done over the last like year or two with their decline and the fact they come from the Royals your gut reaction is to be like, oh, no. It just, I'd have to wait and see what the deal looked like before I get my pitchfork and my torch out. I would need the Royals to give me prospects to take Salvador Perez right now. Just cause, <laughs> and like, I, get what, like, I get what you're saying. Like, it's, it's a veteran leader, right? But it's going to be a bad team. And I know you didn't say the veteran leader part, but I mean, that has to be what this is, right? Grafol, like wants allies, and that's his buddy, and he, he can't lead the team, so he needs like him to do it. But I think it's what $44 million over the next two years. He was a negative war player last year with an 86 WRC plus. 
Like, he was terrible. And everybody talks about Grandal and they hated him. And, like, yeah, Perez, Perez hit homers, right? So that's more valuable. But, like, overall, they were, like, very similar. So, like, I just, I would not be giving up prospects of any kind to get Salvador Perez. It's just the whole thing doesn't make any sense. And I joked on Twitter, I know you, uh, you, you've you received some of these fan surveys. I know we, we've talked about this, right, where the White Sox are very committed to asking their fans, like, oh, do you like this player, like, personally? Who would who would you come to the ballpark to see? Do you connect with you know? this guy? Do you Right, exactly. That sort of stuff, right? Did Is there anyone that asked for this? Like, does anybody want Royals players? Like, what what is happening? Who heard about this and thought that this is, like, a good idea? I think it's the fan in me. I think the fan in me is still trying to find a reason why this wouldn't be a terrible idea. Like, I don't like the names. I, I think there's better that they can do while they're out there. I yeah, do, like, you know, what Merrifield's a, it's fine. Yeah, like you said, right? If it's one year, four million, fine. But, like, just play Jose Rodriguez. You're going to be terrible. Like, what are, like, what are we doing? Well, that's because you guys love your prospects. You, 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 future Sox guys, you love your prospects. It's like true. all your prospects. It's... You got to get them up to the majors. You got to give them. A I mean, if you're gonna get an 88 WRC plus from somebody, just play the guy that makes no money. That is true. <laughs> if they sign Whit Merrifield, I'm convinced that Kenny's still around. That he's still in there. Like he, he's, he's still there he's, somewhere. Yeah. He's like there's a there's a secret entrance, and he comes up through the walls. Yeah, it's the ghost of Ken Williams. So speaking <laughs> of Ken Williams, it's a good segue. Kim Ng out. I guess as general manager of the Marlins, the Marlins decided that they were going to try to hire a president of baseball operations and put this theoretical person above Kim Ng. And she basically, you know, like said, yeah, no, thanks. And so now she's a free agent. She's been linked to the White Sox kind of in like a Brittany Garoli, Ken Rosenthal piece that seemed speculative. But what do you think about that? Just to me, like, I feel like it would be, some sort of senior advisor because Jerry Reinsdorf was very clear that Chris Getz is the sole decision maker. I would be stunned if Kim Ng ended up on the White Sox in a role that's like outranks Chris Getz. That that would be that would be very surprising at this point. Well, well, first off, I thought it was just astounding how all the the news sources covered that on on Monday morning. The the idea that the on all these headlines, I saw more than one of them. Marlins part ways with Kim Ng. And, and when you read the story, they picked up her option and she declined it. They didn't part ways with her. She parted ways with them. And you know what's funny about it is, not only did she get the disrespect of that, but look at what she did and how she got this, you know, she, she's she been building this team and then they don't consider the idea of elevating her and putting somebody below her. So, I mean, like, I get it. I would have done the same thing as her. Good for her. And she'll find a job someplace else. I don't know if she comes into the White Sox, though. And the first thought that kind of hit me was when I looked at when she worked for the White Sox. You know, Jerry Reinstorf brought in Kenny Williams because he seemed to be clearing the decks of the people that were making the decisions in the 90s, which was weird because they went to the postseason. In the, in the 90s, and they had a really good team there in the in the, in, in the early part and then into, you know, they, they, they won a division in 93, and then they, they, they would have, I think, won the World Series in 94 if it wouldn't have been for the strike, and they still had a really good team in 95, and there was, you know, but he moved on from a lot of the people there, and, and what I always heard, you know, from through the grapevine and people that were around there at the time was that, like, there were people in the front office that would tell Jerry no, that would say, no, we have to do it this way. 
and they would insist on different things and they would be really pushing for money. There weren't a lot of yes men, as many yes men inside of the room. She may not be part of the club. That's that's what I'm trying to get to here. She's, she really isn't part of the regime that was the club that lasted for like 20 years inside of that building. So I don't know if she's got enough of a connection that all of a sudden she's just going to be welcomed back with open arms and put in front of uh, above Chris Getz. I mean, it's an interesting story, but also it could be just like, what are we going to write about today? Well, where do you think she could go? Didn't she used to work for the White Sox? Let's throw that in the story. So I don't, I don't, I don't know if I buy that she's coming here. I think that like Getz has been given the reins, and I, I'd be shocked if all of a sudden that Jerry changes course and and brings her back to sit above him. Chris, this has been fantastic. I have one more question for you, and then we'll wrap up this episode. Uh, just real quick, going back to the second base situation, I, I feel like the White Sox need major league representation there this year. I'm talking about in 2024 because I think it would be a little aggressive to assign that position strictly to Lenin Sosa and Jose Rodriguez at this point. And then you're hoping to watch Colson Montgomery develop and call him up and get, look, I, I think he'll get major league playing time next year. I, I think that's on the table because of how um, advanced he is as a prospect. Athletically, we can see that he moves very well and can play the shortstop position. It's just, we can't hand over the keys just yet to these players because I think there's still value in allowing them to fail and overcome failure in the minor leagues because it's not as significant, right? Because once you get to the major leagues, development can get stunted, possibly but there's the potential there. So if you're trying to play it safe, I want a fail safe in a guy like Whit Merrifield or like you suggested, maybe Jorge Polanco. Um, and again, it's it'll be curious to see what happens with Tim Anderson because it's an important decision. You need somebody to play shortstop. Um, to wrap it up here, I know you talked to Elijah Evans on the Sox in the Basement podcast. He's been all over paying attention to the Arizona Fall League and obviously doing the player interviews for us at Future Sox. I'm curious your opinion of the season that Colson Montgomery had. I just gave you my opinion about Montgomery's timeline. How do you feel uh, he is, you know, where he is as a prospect, and how close do you believe he is to the majors? Oh, I go to you guys to find out that kind of stuff. I, no, mean, I just want based, your opinion. Based upon based upon what, what James has said and, and based upon Elijah and based upon just kind of looking at what Colson's been doing, you know, my only concern is the fact this is an organization that brings up guys too quickly before they're completely finished. And he he would be a little bit further along if it wouldn't have been for injury this year. And so you're just kind of sitting there saying, okay, let's see how the kid goes. It's really hard to put a timeline on him because you don't want to rush him. Like, it, look, it, he, he started to come alive in the Arizona Fall League over the last week, which is great. And if he comes into the spring and he's ripping the cover off the ball, then I would sit there and say, okay, we're going to see this guy by mid-year. If he, if he if he stumbles, if he gets a triple A and it takes him, you know, a couple of uh, a couple of months to adjust in the middle of the year, then maybe he's just a September call up or he's he's the person that we're all waiting for on opening day in 2025. So I it really kind of depends on how he how he progresses now that the injuries are out of the way. And hopefully he gets some some playing time that isn't interrupted by another injury. Like nothing else gets in his way. If nothing else gets in his way, then, you know, I, I would love to see him before the year is over next year. And I would love to be able to pencil him in as my shortstop opening day in 2025. That's what I would like. But I, I would like to just dive back into something you just said because I mm -hmm. love it. Okay. One of the other shows on the broadcast basement on demand radio network is one that's out of Pittsburgh. It's the only show that's not out of Chicago. I have a friend of mine who's a writer, and he writes about the Pittsburgh Pirates. It's called Bucks in the Basement. He brings me on to talk baseball, and honestly, 
I know more about the Pirates than I probably should now for being <laughs> on this show. And I will tell you something that Ben Charrington and the Pittsburgh Pirates have done that I wish that the White Sox would learn from. And, and, and it's the reason why some big market teams are always successful because they still take some of the lessons from the small market teams who don't spend a lot of money. And trust me, Bob Nutting out in Pittsburgh is so much cheaper than Jerry Reinsdorf. Like he makes Jerry Reinsdorf look like, like, like George Steinbrenner, just throwing money around. Like that's what he makes him look like. But, but Ben Charrington out there did a great job in the last couple of years with the rebuild by grabbing as much talent as he could and having as much depth as he could and really going after, like, athletes that play shortstop in center field because they can be converted to other positions. Like, really, really smart how he acquired all the talent. And it's redundant talent, too, right? It's not like we know who our shortstop is and then there's nobody else behind him. No, there's, like, four of them, right? It's that They have, like, three second-base prospects, I think, in the MLB Top 100 or very close to it on, on MLB Pipeline. Like, they, they really have stacked what they have. But then what he does is he still goes out and gets a major league baseball player to go play that position. And he makes the prospects outplay that player to get the job. He's not blocking anybody. He doesn't do anything that's cost restrictive. He doesn't go out and get like a superstar. He's not, he's not battling for the top free agent out there. But a professional baseball player will stand at every position next year. And there will be a guy who their fans will be clamoring for to come up, but that guy's going to have to prove it. He's going to have to be tearing the cover off the ball in AAA, and then he's going to come up and he's going to get an opportunity. And if he doesn't work out, the professional baseball player that moved to the bench will move right back into that position. They, the, their big debate over there now is who's going to play second base because they got like four candidates. I mean, they, and, they, and they have all these little role players that they bring in who are completely capable of standing there if the young guy doesn't work out. And so I like competition, and I think you need to have professional baseball players at all nine positions on the field, and then we let the prospects come in and do the best they can. And you know what? If you got a guy and you're like, you know what, he needs like 50 at-bats up here, fine. Give him the 50 at-bats, especially in 24 where it doesn't count, all right? But on the other hand, if it isn't working out, at some point you go, hey, kid, you had your opportunity. Next. And that's the thing the White Sox need. They need to have enough depth that if a guy gets up and he gets his at-bats and he's terrible – we're not just sitting there saying, well, maybe we'll bring him back next year and give him another chance. Okay? No, it's next. And that's the thing the Pirates have done very well in their build, and I think that's why they're going to be competitive. Starting next year, you watch. They're going to be competitive. I think they're a playoff team. They're going to go out and make some moves, but they're going to have incredible depth, and that's something Chris Getz has to get to right away. That's Chris Lanuti, leader of BroadcastBasement.com. Make sure you're following him at Chris Lanuti on Twitter. At James Fox 917 I'm at Rankin906, and at Future Sox for all things White Sox baseball. We release podcasts every week. This one drops on Tuesdays. We also talk to Elijah Evans. Uh, Future Sox Roundup is on Fridays. Also, I should mention that Elijah does one-on-one -on -one interviews with prospects. We like to post them on Mondays as well, so make sure you're keeping an eye out on there and subscribe to the podcast wherever you can. Chris, this has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, guys. Thanks for letting me talk so much. Yeah, it was great. For James Fox and Chris Lanuti, <laughs> my name's Mike Rankin. Hey, thanks for listening to the Future Sox podcast. Be sure to subscribe and also support us on Patreon if you're willing. Uh, it really does help us out. It propels us every day to go forward. So thank you, thank you, thank you. We'll talk to you all next week.